Welcome to Coffee Con Trails. In today's feature, we've got Johnny Grant, Private Eye, The Multi-Spectrum, written by Rick Paladin Pratt and read by Bob Hubel. Let's get started. The first time I met Mr. Richard Devon was when my secretary showed him into my office. He was a man of middling height in a plain but meticulously cut gray suit. His stiff formal posture made him seem taller than he was, and with his short, well-coiffed gray hair and stern, dark-eyed visage, he exuded the air of a successful, confident man of business. I rose to meet him with an extended hand, which he took in a firm but not overly strong grip. You are Mr. Grant? So they tell me, I said, straight-faced. A slight look of consternation crossed his countenance. Oh, well. I guess big-shot businessmen can't afford a sense of humor to go along with their expensive suits and chauffeured cars. One of these days, my sarcasm was going to get me in a real jam. I gestured to the chair facing my desk. Please, have a seat, Mr. Devon, and tell me what I can do for you. He hesitated for a moment, then seated himself. From his breast pocket, he removed a gold cigarette case and a telescoping cigarette holder. Placing a cigarette in the holder, he lit it with a lighter that looked like a gold nugget. I had already dropped into my chair. I shook a lucky strike out of a deck and struck a match on my desktop to light it. Looking at him through the smoke, I waited for him to begin. I want you to find my daughter. Straight to the point. I like that in a client. I am a widower, Mr. Grant. My daughter Cynthia is my only child, and I have, perhaps, been overindulgent with her whims as a result. She has become a headstrong and willful young woman, and I have sometimes been at my wit's end attempting to cope with her fiery nature. I own a house on the north shore of Long Island. While staying there this summer, my daughter became involved with a man much older than she is. It began one night when we were attending a garden party at the estate of a business associate. It was then that we made the acquaintance of a Mr. Gerald Osborne. Mr. Osborne struck me as a man who was <laughs> new to his wealth. He had not the manners of a proper gentleman. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he gave the impression of having made his money by dubious means. You mean he's a gangster, I asked? Perhaps. Perhaps so. In any event, my daughter was apparently charmed by his common, uncouth behavior. She spent a great deal of time speaking with him. Far too much time. It was completely improper. I attempted to take her aside to discuss her behavior, but she became enraged and threatened to make a scene. I managed to remove her from the party, and we returned home. I had hoped that within a few days the matter would be behind us, but it was not to be. Cynthia refused to speak with me. She locked herself in her rooms and would only venture forth to take her meals. I was somewhat angered by her behavior, and I attempted to confine her to the house. But she apparently found means to sneak out without my knowledge. I eventually became aware that she was meeting with this scoundrel. They had been observed together in town by my driver. I attempted to put a stop to it at once. I forbade her to have any further contact with the rogue, and I sent a man of my employ around to dissuade him from attempting to contact her again. I guess your man wasn't quite persuasive enough, or you wouldn't be here talking to me now, I interjected. Quite right. The villain absconded with her. I've been able to learn that they have traveled here to Manhattan, but I have been unable to discover their whereabouts in the city. Assuming they're still here, I have reason to believe they are. Mr. Osborne claimed to have extensive business interests as well as a permanent residence in the city. How old is your daughter, I asked. She is 21. You do realize, I said, that she is legally an adult. She can run off and marry any damn fool she pleases. I'm aware of that. Yet, I am also aware of your reputation, Mr. Grant. I am quite certain that your investigations of Mr. Osborne will bear fruit, and that in light of these revelations... You can convince him that it would be in his best interest to cut off his relationship with my daughter. Once this has been achieved, I believe Cynthia will return to me, of her own accord. You're sure Osborne is dirty, I asked? 
quite certain, he said with conviction. Well then, Mr. Devon, I'll take your case. I leaned forward in my chair. There is, of course, the matter of my retainer. Of course. Would $500 be sufficient? My eyes opened a little wider. Quite generous, although, in all fairness, I have to tell you that I was only going to ask for a hundred. No matter, Mr. Grant. I wish to see to all your needs now. This way, should any unforeseen business expenses arise during the course of your investigation, you would not find it necessary to contact me. I should like to keep this matter as discreet as possible. As he was speaking, he removed an envelope and some photographs from his breast pocket and slid them across the desk. I looked at the photos first. One was a group shot at a party. Devin reached over and pointed at a tall, thin, dark-haired man in the second row. That is Mr. Osborne. I glanced at the second picture and tried not to whistle. Cynthia Devin was quite a looker. Redhead, I asked. She had the look, but of course she can't tell in a photograph. Devin nodded. I left my card with your secretary. Please contact me when you have found both my daughter and the evidence necessary to separate her from Mr. Osborne. He rose. We shook hands, and then, taking his hat, he left. Penny, I called to my secretary. Then I opened a desk drawer, took out a bottle and two glasses, and set them on top. Penny came into the office. Her eyebrow rose in a questioning manner. She saw the bottle and smiled, then sauntered over and sat in my lap, crossing her long legs. We have a case? We do. I leaned forward to pour us a couple of drinks, and her long blonde hair brushed against my cheek. And a $500 retainer. She stopped in the act of lifting her drink and stared at me open-mouthed. Drink up, sweetheart, I said with a lopsided grin. She downed it in one shot. Then she jumped off my lap and said excitedly, Well, what are you waiting for? Get out there and solve this case. I sighed, then swallowed my own drink. You sure know how to kill a mood. Never mind that. Get out there and earn that 500 bucks. Shaking my head and chuckling, I stood and walked over to get my hat. As I passed her, I gave Penny a playful swat in the bottom. She yelped, then turned with her hands on her hips and fixed me with a stern glare. I gave her another grin, then beat a hasty retreat. Out on the street, I climbed up to the platform of a gyro taxi stand and pressed the button on the pole to hail a cab. The light on top of the pole began to flash, and after a few minutes, I saw one swerve down towards me. I stepped back against the rail as it came in for a landing, holding on to my hat so the wind from the prop and the top rotor didn't blow it away. I climbed in, and the pilot turned around to glance at me. Where to, Mac? 80th and 53rd Street, I said. As a gyro taxi took off and began to navigate the congested canyons of the New York streets, I settled back in to my seat to think. Finding someone in a city of almost two million people was not an easy job, even with a photo and a name. But I had a good idea of how to go about looking for Miss Devon and her shady companion. The Black Orchid Ballroom was a popular night spot. A wealthy young woman who was fond of parties and nightlife would be almost certain to go there at some point, and the owner was a friend of mine. Even if they didn't go to the Orchid, chances were that they wouldn't be the stay-at-home types. I would just have to visit all the bars and dance halls until I found them or someone who had seen them. The cabbie dropped me off on the platform. I tossed him a fin and told him to keep the change, then took the elevator down to the street. The Black Orchid was in the middle of 53rd, it was the middle of the day, so the place was closed, but I knew that Tom would be in. I knocked on the delivery door, and Tom himself answered. Johnny, what are you doing in this part of town? Business, Tom, I said as he led me into his office. I'm looking for a girl. Ain't you always? I smiled. Yeah, well, this time I'm working on a case. I took out the photograph of Cynthia Devon. Have you seen this girl? He took the photo and studied it for a moment. Yeah, I seen her. She's been here a few times. She was here just the other night with a fella. Bingo! A fella, huh? 
Was it this guy? I passed him the other picture. Yeah, that's him. Nasty piece of work, that guy. Oh, yeah? I raised an eyebrow in interest. I don't know his name, but I seen him with Vinnie the Finger. I whistled. Vinnie the Finger Carpone was a big man in the city's underworld. He had a finger in every form of illegal activity, from prostitution to gambling to bank jobs. If it was illegal and there was money to be made, Vinny had a piece of it. Do you think he works for him, I asked? I don't know for sure. I don't think he does. Probably not one of Vinny's boys, but maybe an associate. I could check on that later. Thanks, Tom. I'll be by tonight to drink some of your rot gut. Tom laughed, then turned serious. Fine, Johnny, but if you're going to be working... Don't worry, I said. If they're here, all I'm going to do is watch them. I hope so. I just finished cleaning up after the last time you were working in my joint. I gave him my most sincere grin. Trust me. I grabbed a gyro taxi and headed over to Times Square. It dropped me off on the platform at the north end at the corner of 47th. It was early, and the neon splendor of the square had not yet awakened to its nighttime brilliance, but it was still busy. They say the place is a crossroads of the world, and that everyone comes there eventually. I don't know about that, but there were sure a whole lot of people there. It was all I could do to force my way down the sidewalk. It would be a hard place to find someone if you didn't know where to look. Luckily for me, I did. Around the corner in an alley off of 42nd Street, I found my man. Jimmy Parks was a lanky, sallow-faced punk in a dirty newsboy's cap with a cheap cigarette pasted in the corner of his mouth. He was a small-time crook and pimp, and he was one of my regular informants, though not by his own choice. I had some really good dirt on old Jimmy, dirt that would earn him a pair of cement shoes if I whispered it in the right ear. As usual, he wasn't very happy to see me. Geez, Grant, you trying to get me killed? What are you doing here in broad daylight? Relax, Jimmy, I said, placing my hand on his shoulder. Why don't you step into my office so we can have a talk in private? I shoved him down the alley and then pushed him behind a dumpster. Yeah, you freaking bad. Jimmy responded with a couple of words that would have gotten a mouthful of soap and a ruler across the knuckles in a good Catholic school. I just backhanded him across the face. Watch your language, Jimmy. I have delicate ears. You can't just come down here and slap me around. He was getting himself all riled up. I got friends, see? I know fellas who can take care of you. I didn't have time for one of Jimmy's tantrums. I grabbed him by his tie and slammed his head against the brick wall a few times, then pulled him up on his toes, his face close to mine. I can look really mean and ugly when I put my mind to it and I gave old Jimmy Boy the full effect. Listen up, slime ball, I growled in his face. The only reason you're still sucking air is because you sometimes make yourself useful to me. If the cops stuck you behind bars or your boss threw you in the river, it wouldn't mean a thing to me. You're just a low-life, no-good pimp. If you want to keep breathing, you better try real hard to keep me happy. His eyes were big and round with terror. I think he actually wet his pants. I tossed him back against the wall. His legs gave out and he collapsed to the grimy pavement. Get up, I barked in disgust. He pushed himself shakily to his feet. I didn't mean nothing. Honest. I was just kidding. Really, I was. What do you need, Grant? I'll tell you anything. Anything you want. I stared at him with my evil face for a little bit longer just to make sure. Then I took out the picture of Osborne and showed it to him. You know this guy? His eyes got wider for a moment, and then he looked back at me and flinched. Yeah, I know him. Well, I growled. He flinched again. His name's Fletcher. Adam Fletcher. He's a fence. Deals mostly in high-end merchandise. Expensive jewelry, artwork, stuff like that. I kept up my level stare. How do you know so much about him, Jimmy? That's not your usual racket. I... I did a job for him. Me and a mick named Sean. He gave us a lowdown on a Park Avenue apartment. He paid off the help to get us in and we robbed the joint. It was a funny job. All he wanted was this crate that was in the safe. That's what Sean was for. 
He's a first-rate cracker. So he gets in this crate, we get to have the rest of the take. Jewelry, dough, silver, and gold plates, and candlesticks. All sorts of stuff. It was the best haul I ever seen. All he wants is this one lousy crate. What did the crate look like? How big was it, I asked. It was about the size of a suitcase, but it was heavy. Oh, yeah, he had writing on it. Writing, words, and numbers. What did it say, I asked. He made a face. Mm, I never learned to read. I dropped out of school in the third grade. I sighed. All right, what else? Well, like I said, it was the best haul I ever seen. We moved it down the freight elevator. Fletcher had a truck waiting for us. I figured when he saw all we got, he'd change his mind and want to cut. He just smiled said good work. Then he took his crate and left. So I figure I'll take my half and retire. Move south or something. Sean and me was laying low in an old warehouse waiting to move the loot. We stayed together to keep an eye on each other, you know? So one of us didn't try to cheat the other. I nodded. Well, I had gone down to the corner to get something to eat, when all of a sudden I hear a bunch of shooting coming from the warehouse. I look outside and I see a whole bunch of cops in front of the place, and more going on in the doors. So I beat it. I figured after they got Sean, they'd come looking for me. I found out later that the stupid Mick got himself killed trying to shoot it out with the cops. The cops didn't know nothing about me or our loot when they raided the place. They thought they was just going after one mad dog killer of a bank robber. So I lost it all for nothing. Tough break, I said. I wasn't exactly consoling about it. He gave me a sour look, but he went on with his story. I went to Fletcher to see if he could help me out, seeing as I'd done the job for him in the first place. But the cheap bum told me that if I didn't hold on to my money, that it was my problem, not his. He looked at me and his face was hard. If you want to take him down, be my guest. I'd done that job for him and I ain't got nothing to show for it. Arrest him. Kill him for all I care. I went down to the automat and got myself the afternoon paper, a sandwich, and a cup of coffee. I thought about the case as I drank. It was shaping up nicely. I figured I had enough dirt on Osborne or Fletcher, or whatever he wanted to call himself, to convince him to back off. Still, there was something about this case that bothered me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Something just didn't feel right. I chased my thoughts around through two more cups, but I couldn't pin down what it was. Then I looked at the paper. Hitler had invaded Poland. Not again, dear God, not again. I remember the last war well enough, far too well. I remembered in 1918, when we thought the war was about to end. Then the German land ironclads had come rolling over no man's land, blasting the British tanks into so much scrap metal and pushing our lines back to the breaking point. It had taken time, another four years of hard fighting, and that crazy young officer, Patton, President Roosevelt's golden boy, to finally beat them. He convinced Teddy to buy those weird tricycle tanks from the Russians. They were light on armor, but Patton used them like old horse cavalry. And they ran rings around the land ironclads, shooting out their tracks, then swarming them like wolves taking down a bear. Even after the president died in 1919, no one could argue with Patton's success. We'd won, yes. In the end, we'd won. But we'd had to weigh neck deep in blood to do it. The paper's editorial column was a fiery piece in support of America's policy of neutrality. The American people, it said, had had their fill of foreign wars. They wanted no part in this one. By the time I left, it was dark outside. I went to the corner platform and hailed a gyro taxi. The trip downtown to the Orchid took longer than I had expected. Sky traffic was heavy and Broadway was crowded with advertising dirigibles. Even so, when I got to the club, the crowd was still light. I got myself a drink, found a dark corner, and settled down to watch. The floor show that night was Professor Jackson Sachs and his automatic orchestra. The professor was a crazy looking old fossil with wild white hair and a mismatched suit. His orchestra was a gigantic, 
clanking monstrosity. It looked like a piston engine from a destroyer that had gotten into a traffic accident with a trumpet factory. The professor was jumping around and waving his baton at the behemoth while it chugged along and blasted notes out its trumpet bells. Whether his conducting actually affected the thing or not, I had no idea. But it didn't sound half bad. I turned my attention back to the crowd. It was a usual mix of city regulars and tourists out for a night on the town. It was going on midnight by my jump hour watch, and I was starting to think they wouldn't show tonight when suddenly I saw her, Cynthia Devon, big as life and even better looking than her photograph. Her long red hair was fashionably pinned up and she was wearing a red evening gown that hugged her curves in such a way that I almost forgot what I was supposed to be doing. I finally managed to drag my gaze from her figure long enough to scan the crowd for Osborne, or Fletcher, or whatever he was calling himself, but he was nowhere to be seen. She took a table not far from the corner I was lurking in. From the moment she sat down, she appeared to be agitated. Was she waiting for Osborne? Maybe someone else? She turned down a number of prospective suitors asking for a dance, and as time went by, she appeared to become more anxious. After an hour had passed, she stood up and headed for the door. I followed after her at a distance, making sure not to lose sight of her. I knew that if she had headed for a car or tried to hail a cab or a gyro, I'd have to move fast, but when she got outside, she turned left and headed east on foot. I followed her to the end of the block. Then she turned and started across the street towards an all-night parking garage. I was just thinking that I'd have to find a cab after all when I suddenly got that crawling feeling on the back of my neck. When you do this job long enough, you start to get something, whether you want to call it instinct, premonition, or eyes in the back of your head. Little things, sounds, smells, motion out of the corner of your eye, things that tip you off if you're good and live long enough. Well, I had that feeling now, so I sidestepped into an alley, and just as I did, I heard a gunshot. Chips of brick burst from the wall behind where my head had just been as a bullet ricocheted off of it. I dropped low, pulled my rod, and worked the slide to chamber around. I heard the girl scream and fall to the street. Stay down, I yelled in her direction, and then I turned and scanned the street. It was dark, and the streetlights left large pools of shadow outside their circles of illumination. I stayed low and in the shadow of the alley entrance, looking for some sign of the shooter. Suddenly, I saw movement behind a black sedan parked about five cars down from my position. I saw the muzzle of the revolver moving as he searched the shadows for me. I fired. I didn't have a clear shot at him from my position, but I blew out the window of the sedan and sprayed him with broken glass. He screamed and fell back. I ran in a low crouch between the parked cars, my 45 leading the way. He was scrambling around the front of the car I had shot. I fired again and he yelled and fell down. Then he was up and running again, holding his left arm. I started after him, but as he got to the corner, he jumped into a sedan, which had apparently been waiting for him. Tires squealed as it sped off. I looked around for a cab, but the streets were empty, so I walked back over to where the girl had fallen. I found her crouching between two cars. She screamed when she saw me and tried to run, but stumbled against the car. Relax, doll. I ain't here to hurt you. I holstered my rod and helped her to her feet. She looked at me warily, tears running from her bright blue eyes. Who are you? She asked in a choking sob. Who are you? I held her shoulders to steady her. She was shaking like a leaf. My name's Johnny, Johnny Grant. I'm a private detective. Your father hired me to find you. I showed her my badge. My father? She asked in a puzzled tone. There must be some mistake. My father's dead. I looked at her closely. She was the girl from the photograph, no doubt about that. I took it from my breast pocket and showed it to her. Is this you, I asked. She covered her mouth with her hand and uttered a small cry. Where did you get that? From the man who said he was your father when he hired me to find you. He said his name was Richard Devon and that you were his daughter, Cynthia. 
I am Cynthia Devon. But my father's name was Herbert. He died three years ago. Tell me, Mr. Grant, was this man tall and thin with black eyes, salt and pepper hair and a mustache? Yes, I answered. I understand now. You've been misled, Mr. Grant. This man is known to me. His name is Benjamin Downs. He and I were, at one time, involved. Her face colored bright red, and she looked down. I sighed. I understand, Miss Devon. I suppose you and Mr. Downs didn't part under the most congenial circumstances? No. She whispered, still looking down. We did not. He told me you were with another man, a man named Osborne. Her breath caught, and her eyes widened slightly, but she regained her composure. I am no longer on speaking terms with Mr. Osborne. She answered rather stiffly. I decided to try a different line of questioning. Do you have any idea who could have been shooting at us, I asked? N no, I, I don't. She fell against me, and I caught her before she could fall to the ground. I felt her shiver as she began to cry. Shh, I said. It's all right. It's over. She began hesitantly. Nothing like this has ever happened to me before. She began to sob against my chest. Don't worry. I tried to soothe her. You're safe now. I held her, and after a few minutes, her sobbing began to slow. Is your car parked in the garage? Yes. She said breathlessly. I, I, I don't think I could drive now, though. Could, could you? Oh, I, I hate to trouble you, but could you help me? Sure. I helped her to her car. It was a sporty little three-wheeled roadster. She handed me the key, and I helped her in. I climbed in myself and then started up the machine. Then, after paying the attendant, we headed uptown. She directed me to her apartment, still acting a little shaken, but as we drove, she seemed to be getting herself under control. When we pulled up to the curb, she turned to me. You've been so kind, she said timidly. I hate to be more of a bother to you, but I'm so afraid. Could you possibly escort me up? I looked at her. She was very beautiful, and her tears and her seemingly innocent request for protection only accentuated her beauty. Sure, it's no bother at all, I said. I opened her door and took her hand as she climbed out. Then, tossing her car key to one of the attendants, I escorted her into the building and to the elevator. The elevator operator eyed us curiously, but I gave him my best mind-your-own-business look and he quickly turned away. When we arrived at her door, she turned and asked me haltingly, Would you like to come in and have a drink? She blushed furiously as she said it. It must be rough being a redhead. I know that sounds terribly forward, but I'm just so afraid to be alone. It's fine, I replied, giving her my best lopsided grin. Don't worry, I'm just a big pussycat. She smiled back and then giggled, <laughs> laughing, and we went inside. <laughs> nice joint, I said, looking around, and it was. Expensive leather furniture, art deco sculptures, and expensive-looking paintings. There was even a big marble fireplace. I tossed my battered hat onto a chair and walked over to the bar. I'll handle the drinks, I said. Why don't you sit down and relax? She sat in a chair as I busied myself with gin, vermouth, orange bitters, ice, and a couple of glasses. I set the drinks on the coffee table and then stepped around it to sit on the couch. Looking at her as she sipped her drink, I noticed that the slit in her dress showed a lot of leg as she crossed them, and I tried not to let my eyes linger there too long. We drank and talked of inconsequential things, and drank some more. We were halfway through our fourth round of drinks when I asked her about the man who had hired me. So, why was this Downs trying to find you? 
He's insanely jealous. He swore that if I ever so much as looked at another man, he would kill me. I suppose the man who shot at us tonight must be one of his men. You don't think it was Downs himself, I asked as I refilled our drinks. No, he wouldn't do that sort of thing himself. He would be somewhere very public and plenty of witnesses and send one of his men to handle it. I didn't figure him for the type, I mused. He seemed too civilized, too genteel. That's the front he puts on for people. He fooled me at first. But by the time I realized my mistake, it was too late. As she spoke, some of the frightened, wary look began to return to her face, and she gulped down the rest of her drink. I went over to mix us up some fresh ones. So, I said, this Downs hires me to find you. And then he has one of his goons follow me with orders to ice us both when I do find you. Or maybe, I paused. I had been watching her carefully as I spoke. She was hiding something I could tell. I wasn't quite sure what yet, but I was starting to get an idea in my head. Maybe what? She asked. Maybe he was only supposed to kill me, I said as I handed her the glass. After all, he was shooting at me, not you. Maybe he was supposed to bring you back to Downs. She was looking decidedly nervous now. She tried to cover it up by sipping from her drink. Suddenly, she moved from her chair to the sofa at my side. Her face had taken on a haunted, desperate expression, her eyes glistening. I'm so afraid. Oh, Johnny, I'm so afraid of what he'll do to me. She burst into tears and threw herself against me, burying her face in my chest. I put an arm around her back and held her to me. She was good. I had to give her that. She could let loose with that waterworks on cue. I almost half believed her. Almost. She lifted her head and looked at me, her blue eyes sparkling. Johnny, please help me. Please keep me safe. Her voice was a soft whisper. She leaned closer, and I let her kiss me. Then, grabbing her roughly, I pulled her soft, curved body against mine. Her kisses were hot, passionate, and I gave as good as I got. Her gown made a rustling sound as she unfastened it and let it fall. I reached past her and turned off the lamp. The glow of the sleepless city through the big picture window bathed the room in a soft light, and her pale, flawless skin was faintly illuminated in that ghostly radiance. Outside, in the vast black sky, the flashing lights of airships and autogyros passed to and fro over the sleepless city. When I awoke the next morning, she was still curled up next to me, fast asleep. I got up from the bed and began to dress. She stirred and looked up at me sleepily, her red hair tussled around her beautiful face. Where are you going? She asked. I have to go out, doll. I need to find the man who shot at me before he tries to do it again. Please don't leave me alone. She sat up to reach for me and the bed covers fell away from her nakedness. You'll be fine, sweetheart. I won't be long. She stood and wrapped her arms around me, her eyes frightened. Please, oh please, I'm so afraid. I tried to comfort her, but somehow that got us back in bed. About an hour later, I got dressed again and kissed her goodbye. She was much calmer now. I promised to return soon and then got out while the getting was good. Two blocks from her apartment, I found a saloon with a phone in the back. Penny answered on the first ring. She didn't sound happy. Where have you been? She demanded. I got caught up in that case last night. I just bet you did. I suppose that means you found a missing girl. Venom dripped from her words, and I knew I'd have to tread carefully here. I did, I answered, but the case has gotten a little more involved. Oh, really? Just how involved have you gotten with her? her voice now colder than the South Pole. I thought a little truth might help. Involved as in, as I was following her, somebody started shooting at me. Oh, Johnny, are you all right, honey? It truly amazes me sometimes how quickly a woman can change gears. 
I'm fine, I said, and what's more, I'm pretty sure I winged the guy. I'm also pretty sure that he's working for our client, Mr. Devon. Oh, my God. She gasped. Johnny, Mr. Devon has been calling all morning asking for you. I told him you hadn't come in yet. Good. Listen, doll. I want you to lock up the office and go home. Don't answer any more calls. Have you still got that little 32 I gave you in your purse? I always carry it, she said. Keep it in your pocket and keep your hand on it at all times. When you get home, lock up and stay there. I don't think anyone will bother you, but just do this for me, okay, kid? I will. I'll call later to check on you. If you see or hear anything suspicious, call Pete down at the precinct. I will. Johnny, I almost forgot. A man calling himself Jimmy Parks called looking for you. He said that he had important information and that he knew where to find him, but that you'd better hurry. Jimmy calling me at my office? Now that was something new. I found Jimmy in his alley near Times Square. He looked even more nervous than the last time I'd seen him. Jeez, Grant, I thought you'd never get here. He looked like he was trying to watch every direction at once. Sorry, Jimmy, I answered with a snare. I didn't realize I was supposed to check in with you every hour. Ain't no joke, Grant. What the hell did you get me into? I was starting to get annoyed. Are you going to calm down and start making sense, or do I have to slap you around first? That's just dead! What? How did that happen? I snapped. I got to thinking after you came to see me, he said. I thought that if I could get whatever it was you was looking for Fletcher for, maybe I could get some scratch out of you. So I went up to his place. I figured I'd ask if he had any more jobs for me, and then try to find out what it was you was looking for. What made you think Fletcher would tell you anything? I asked suspiciously. He liked his drinking, and when he was on the sauce, he usually got to bragging about stuff. It was a long shot, but I figured it would be worth a try. But when I got to his place, nobody answered the door. I figured that whatever you was looking for might be in his place, so I picked the lock and went in. I found him in the kitchen, sitting in a chair with his pants and underdrawers down around his ankles. Somebody had shot him in the side of the head, and his brains was all over the wall. When did you find him? I asked quickly. Last night, around midnight. What did you do then? Me? I beat it. I didn't know who had bumped him off, and I didn't want to know. Then I got to worrying that whoever done it might still be around. Maybe they saw me. I figured I should get a hold of you and find out what this was all about. Whoever done this, I don't want them coming after me. Fletcher, he done some work for Benny the Finger, and Benny ain't nobody I want to cross. I stood there for a minute, deep in thought. Then I looked at Jimmy and smiled. You can relax, Jimmy. Benny's got nothing to do with this. You sure? Yes, especially after what you just told me, I answered. Then who did it? Nobody you know, Jimmy, I said with a sigh of resignation. Now tell me where Fletcher's apartment is. Before going to the apartment, I went to check on Cynthia Devon. I gave the doorman a fin, and he told me she had gone out. I didn't have any trouble picking her lock. I searched many apartments during my career, some, usually those places that had been lived in for a long time, were hard to search. This turned out to be one of the easier ones. She didn't have a lot of stuff to go through, and I got the impression that this place was an extremely temporary residence for her. When I finally found something, I could have kicked myself for stupidity. It was in the most obvious spot of all, the fireplace. It was a scrap of wood, mostly burned and buried under the ashes. A bit of stencil lettering could still be read. Op secret, int of the Navy, 01105M2. I slipped the scrap of wood into the breast pocket of my trench coat and left, making sure to lock the door behind me. When I arrived at Fletcher's place, the door was standing open. I could see two men in conservatively cut suits standing in the living room from my spot in the hall. If they had had signs over their heads saying G-men, it couldn't have been more obvious. 
I knocked on the door frame. They both spun around and started towards me, and I could hear rapid steps on the stairs to my back as their lookout hurried in to flank me. Who are you? Johnny Grant, private detective, I answered with a casual smile. I figured I'd run into you guys eventually. I produced my credentials, and he snatched them from my hand. So, I continued nonchalantly, who's the agent in charge here? The one holding my badge gave me a dark look. We'll ask the questions here. He barked, getting right up in my face. He had to stand on tiptoe to do it, though. I continued to smile at him. If you want to kiss me, you should brush your teeth first. Your breath stinks. His eyes went wide. Then he uttered a snarl and started to lunge for me, but his partner grabbed him and pulled him back. Just then, another man came from inside the apartment. He was older than the others and had an air of calm self-assuredness that they lacked. Mr. Grant, I'm glad you're here. It saves us the trouble of finding you. I'm Agent Blair, FBI. He extended his hand, and I shook it. He had a firm, solid handshake. Barton, get back on station. You two get back in there and continue searching. I turned to my friend with a bad breath. I like my badge back. That earned me an even nastier look, but he slapped it into my hand without further comment. Blair motioned me inside and shut the door behind us. So, he began. What can you tell me about the man who lives here? Don't you mean lived, I said. Is his body still in the kitchen? At the hard look in his eyes, I continued quickly. Relax, Agent Blair. I didn't kill him. He watched my eyes carefully for a moment, then spoke. Very well. Lived, then. And yes, in answer to your question, we have not moved the body yet. So, what can you tell me about him? Well, I said, as I lit a cigarette. Depending on who you talked to, his name was either Osborne or Fletcher. But personally, I'd put my money on neither. He was a thief and a fence, dealing in fine art and other expensive merchandise. He was a part-time associate of the local mob and had a taste for expensive booze and young, attractive women. None of which I figure is much interest to you, but this might be. I took out the fragment of wood from my pocket and tossed it to him. He looked at it for a moment, then looked up at me, eyes hard. Where did you get this? Softly, Blair, softly. We'll get to that, I spoke calmly. This is a matter of national security. He went on in a cold, harsh tone. If you refuse to cooperate, it could be viewed as an act of treason. I have every intention of cooperating, I said, and I'm fairly sure I can get the dingus that was in that crate back for you, whatever it is. He paused for a moment, eyes still stern. Go on. I will, I answered, but first, show me the body. He subjected me to that hard-eyed stare for a few more seconds, then spoke. All right, this way. It was pretty much just as I'd expected. The poor sap was sitting in the kitchen chair, which was facing away from the table, his pants and undershorts around his ankles. There was an entry wound in his left temple with powder burns around it, and one hell of an exit wound on the other side. His brains, as Jimmy had said, were mostly all over the wall. As I examined him, I sniffed, and then my eyes got hard. Well, you've seen the stiff. Now tell me how you plan to get the stolen item back. Fine, I said, but in return, you're going to tell me how it wound up in a penthouse apartment on Park Avenue. That's the only part of this whole mess I'm not completely clear on. You promise to tell me that, and I'll tell you how we get it back. He sighed, then nodded his head. Very well. So I told him. I returned to Cynthia Devon's apartment around 6 o'clock. She met me at the door wearing a pale blue silk robe and a worried expression. Where have you been? She asked in a quavering voice. I've been so afraid. Relax, sweetheart, I said as I walked in and shut the door. I grabbed her around the waist and pulled her against me. It didn't feel like she had anything on under that robe. 
I kissed her hard, then let her down. But where have you been? She asked again, as soon as she got her breath back. Oh, here and there, asking questions, I answered, as I tossed my hat and coat onto a chair. She had a nervous look on her face, but was doing her best to hide it. Come on, doll, I continued. Why don't you mix us up some drinks, and I'll tell you about my day. Mm, all right, she said hesitantly. Presently, we were seated on the sofa with a bowl of cracked ice, some limes, a shaker of gin, and a couple of glasses. I poured and we sipped our drinks. So where is it, I asked. She jerked in surprise. What are you talking about? The whatever it is that you and Downs hired Osborne to steal for you. You know, the dingus that was in the crate marked top secret, I continued with a smile. She reached under the cushions of the sofa as if searching for something, and I pulled a 38 snub out of my pocket and aimed it at her. Looking for this, I asked. She froze, staring at the gun. Come on, doll, I said with a lopsided grin. I told you I'm a detective. Did you really think I wouldn't figure this out? I don't know what you're talking about. Of course you do, I laughed. You and Downs hired Osborne or Fletcher or whatever his name is to steal something for you from the penthouse apartment of a wealthy industrialist who was developing this thing for the Navy. This guy, against regulations, likes to take his big projects home and tinker with them. He's also something of a notorious playboy, and I'm thinking that your first job was to seduce him and find out if he actually had the thing at home. Once you were sure it was there, you had Osborne get it for you, which he did using a couple of small-time crooks. Here's the kicker, though. You also seduced Osborne and convinced him to help you cut Downs out of the deal. Then, once you got this thing away from Osborne, you hit it and gave him the slip, too. How am I doing so far? She sat motionless and silent. Anyway, I continued, Downs was still looking for you, but he had no luck looking for you on his own. So he came to me with that phony story about you being his lost daughter. Then he puts a guy on my tail with orders to knock me off when I find you. After that, this guy is supposed to take you back to Downs, but I was better at my job than he figured. You didn't know what to make of me at first, but I have to admit that you recovered pretty quickly. You're good, sister. Make no mistake. Once you'd worked out what happened, you started to work on me right away. You figured you could use me to lead you back to Downs. So tell me why you still need him now that you've got the thing all to yourself. She still said nothing. Come on, spill it already, I said. I think I know anyway, and besides, I reached out with my free hand and caressed her bare thigh. I think I can help you for a fair bit of compensation. A faint smile touched her lips. All right. I'll play. She leaned closer. I need Downs because I can't get in contact with his buyer. That's what I figured, I said. Now here's what I'll do for you. I'll contact Downs and give him an offer. I'll tell him that if he sets up a meeting with his buyer, we'll bring the item for a 50% take. He won't like it, but he doesn't have any choice. He'll have to play along. Then I'll make sure that Downs doesn't walk away from the meeting and you and I split the take 50-50. 70, 30, she said. 60, 40, I countered. She nodded slowly. I put the gun down on the coffee table. Why are you doing this? She asked. I smiled. The dirty little so-and-so tried to have me shot. Besides, you're a lot better looking than he is. <laughs> she laughed, then leaned forward and kissed me. So, tell me what this thing is. Well, she began. According to Downs, it's a device that remotely guides torpedoes by radio signal so that ships can't evade them. It's supposed to constantly shift frequencies over a broad spectrum so that its signal can't be jammed by the enemy. I made a bewildered face. 
If you say so, sister. I ain't much of a scientist myself. So who's the buyer? Some rich investors from Europe, she said. You mean the Germans, I replied. So what if it is, she asked. We're not at war with them, and we're not going to be. Nobody wants another great war. No, I said. I guess they don't. So, she said, extending her hand. Shall we shake on it? I had something a little more enjoyable in mind, I said, as I reached down and untied the belt of her robe. She laughed and <laughs> shrugged her shoulders, allowing the soft fabric <laughs> to fall from her body. Downs was surprised by my call. He was reticent at first, but after some finagling, I managed to convince him to set up the meeting. It was to be held that very Friday at midnight in a warehouse by the docks on the Lower West Side. That gave us three days. I had some special arrangements to make before the meeting. One of those was picking up my special rig from the safe in my office. It was a double holster with space for a 45 under each arm. Not the most comfortable carry in the world, but considering the work I had in front of me, I figured I might need it. I also checked in on Penny. She was not in a good mood, especially after I told her to stay put for the time being. She had some choice words for me, but in the end agreed to do as I asked. I knew I'd pay for it later though. We also had to pick up the device. Cynthia had put the thing in a large safe deposit box at the bank of all places. We went down to the bank and took the box to a private room. When we opened it, I got my first look at the thing. It was about two feet long, a rectangular mass of wires, gears, tubes, and gizmos I had no name for, and it was damn heavy. I could carry it, but I wouldn't be winning any track and field events lugging it around. I had brought a heavy-duty tool satchel to carry it in. Afterwards, we went back to her place for dinner and to wait for the meeting later that night. At 11 o'clock, we drove down to the docks in her car with a device in the trunk. When we pulled up outside the warehouse, she turned to me. John. She asked nervously. It's going to be all right, isn't it? Sure, sweetheart. Nothing to worry about, I said. Are you certain you'll be able to kill Downs? She looked at me searchingly. Don't worry your little head about it, doll. He won't be the first man I ever killed. We got out of the car and got the tool satchel out of the trunk. The warehouse was dimly lit and almost empty with just a few small stacks of crates scattered around. At the far side, two huge doors stood open giving a view of the dock and the blackness of the Hudson River. In the distance, I could just see the lights of New Jersey. In the doorway stood two men. One was Downs. The other was a burly, mean-looking palooka with his right arm in a sling. I looked at the arm and chuckled. He bristled and started forward, but Downs put a restraining hand to his chest. Easy, Donald. Downs spoke calmly. We're all friends here. He turned a cold smile on me, a smile that never reached his eyes. I'm afraid my man Donald is feeling rather cross with you, Mr. Grant. I shrugged. If he goes around shooting at people, he ought to figure that some of them might shoot back. I gave Donald my best ugly grin. That earned me a snarl and a nasty look, but nothing else. I laughed and looked back to Downs. So, where's your buyer? He'll be here presently, he said. Might I inspect the item? I pushed the heavy bag forward with my foot and took a step back. My right hand was in the pocket of my trench coat. Go ahead, take a gander. Downs turned to Donald and motioned toward the bag. With a wary look at me, Donald stepped forward and knelt to examine the contents. After a moment, he turned to his boss and nodded. That's good enough, I said. Now go stand next to your pal and we'll leave the thing right where it is until our buyer gets here. Downs shrugged. Very well. Come here, Donald. So we waited. After about half an hour had passed, Downs suddenly looked up and smiled. Mr. Grant, Cynthia, if you would care to accompany me outside, I believe the last member of our party is about to arrive. I looked at Cynthia. She hesitated for a moment, then started forward, and together we walked out onto the dock.
As we neared the water, I heard a bubbling sound, which grew steadily louder. Ah. The down said. Here he comes now. The water bubbled and churned, and then a black metal bolt broke the surface and rose steadily up, rivulets running down its side. It wasn't a full-size U-boat, but some sort of miniature submarine, only about 40 feet long. When it finished surfacing, the top of the conning tower was about even with the dock. As it pulled up alongside, a hatch opened on the deck and two men in green pants and work shirts climbed out. They each had a length of rope, which they fastened to cleats on the hole. They tossed the ropes up to Downs and Donald, who tied them to the pilings. The two sailors retrieved some sort of collapsible gangplank from inside the sub, which they erected between the conning tower and the dock. When they were done, the hatch on the tower opened with a thud, and four black uniformed soldiers carrying submachine guns climbed out. They crossed the gangplank to stand in a line facing us. Then, a man in a black officer's uniform and carrying a valise climbed out and walked confidently over to stand in the center of the line. Looking at Downs, he spoke. Herr Downs, it is good to see you again. You have the item. His accent brought back unpleasant memories for me, and I had to grit my teeth to hold back a snarl. Certainly, Colonel Schmidt. Downs answered, gesturing towards the tool satchel. You have the agreed payment, of course. Of course. Schmidt answered. One hundred thousand American dollars. He lifted the valise. But first, I must see the item. He nodded, and one of his soldiers walked over to the satchel and opened it. He studied it carefully for a moment, then his eyes widened, and he turned and bellowed furiously at Downs. Tracker is this. This is not the device. He began to reach for his holster. My guns were in my hands fast as lightning, and I put a slug in the chest of the soldier holding the bogus device. He and it fell over the side of the dock, and I heard a loud bong as it hit the deck of the sub. Then all hell broke loose. Schmidt pulled his Luger and shot Downs, winging him only. Cynthia screamed and ran for the warehouse door. Donald shot at Schmidt but missed him, hitting one of the soldiers right between the eyes instead. One of the two remaining soldiers then took out Donald with a full auto burst to the chest that sent him flying backwards in a spray of blood. The other soldier was shooting at me. I threw myself sideways and hit the ground rolling. I came up with both guns blazing, and the one shooting at me caught two in the guts. Schmidt and the last soldier were both bringing their guns to bear on me. We all fired together. I felt a bullet pass close to my cheek. Another dug a furrow down my ribs on my left side, and I grunted in pain. I hit the last soldier square in the jaw with a forty-five slug, and most of his face disappeared. Suddenly, the dock was bathed in bright light. Up in the sky, a searchlight was trained down on us, and beyond it, I could just make out the silhouette of an airship. Good pilot, that one. He would have had to take the ship to a position far enough away that we wouldn't hear the engines but where the air currents would have carried it into position above us, and then shut down and let it drift. Its engines coughed into life now, and then the voice boomed from the loudspeaker above. You on the dock, breathe. With a curse, Schmidt turned and raced towards the sub. I fired and he stumbled and fell over the side. I heard him hit the water with a loud scream. I got up and raced to the edge and got there just in time to see one of the soldiers pulling the hatch shut. There was no sign of Schmidt. Either he had gotten in the sub already, or he had sunk under the water. The hatch slammed shut, and immediately the boat began to submerge. The machine gun on the airship began to fire at the sub, but she was under already, and the shots had no visible effect. Behind me, I could hear agents storming the warehouse. I looked back up at the airship. The spotlight was aimed at the water now, and for the first time, I could see it clearly. I didn't recognize the design. She was long and narrow, with USS Brooklyn marked on the bow, and a large gondola, which had some sort of metallic frame superstructure beneath it. 
Four long silver cigar-shaped objects were suspended from the frame, needle-pointed ends down. They each had a tail rudder and stubby wings in the back. At first, I thought they were torpedoes, but then I noticed that each had a small, clear cockpit just in front of the rudder. Suspended under the stubby wings of each of them were objects that looked like mini torpedoes, four per craft. As I looked, there was a loud clang, and then the four cigar shapes fell from the airship. An instant later, small parachutes opened behind each to slow their fall. They plunged into the water, cutting the surface like knives. I watched the water, wondering what was going on under the surface. I can imagine those four needle-nosed predators chasing down the German sub. Would they catch it? It was infuriating not being able to see the chase. Behind me, I could hear Agent Blair and his men taking Cynthia and Downs into custody. And still, I watched and waited. Suddenly, in the middle of the river, an explosion of foaming water burst into the air. The searchlights from the airship were on it immediately. As the water came cascading back down, objects made small by distance began to surface. It was hard to see, but I was pretty sure that the German sub had been destroyed. The four silver mini-subs surfaced a moment later and proved me right. Well, that's that. I turned at the sound of the voice to see Agent Blair standing next to me. Thank you, Mr. Grant, he said, extending his hand to me. You have done your country a great service. I looked at his hand for a moment, then I took out a deck of luckies, shot one out, and lit it. Sure, I said, flatly. Thanks. I turned from him and walked over to Cynthia. She looked at me, black tear trails of mascara running down her face. She asked in a sobbing, choked voice. Why? Why? I answered coldly. Why? There are quite a few reasons why. The simple answer, though, the only one that matters, is Semper Fidelis. She looked at me in bewilderment. What does that mean? It means always faithful, I answered. It's the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps. I learned the meaning of that phrase in 1918 in a place called Bilou Wood. I learned it while I crawled through mud and blood and the guts of my buddies. I learned it while I learned to kill stinking krauts like that bastard Schmidt and I'll be damned before I'd ever sell out my country and the memories of the men who died there for it to him and his goose-stepping pals. Downs spoke up then. But how did you make a replica of the device so quickly? One that fooled even me. I didn't. I hooked a thumb over my shoulder at the agents. They did. I've been working with them since the day I figured out what was really going on. How could you do this to me, Johnny? Cynthia cried. After all we've shared together? I laughed. Is that what you said to Osborne before you stuck your gun in his ear? What? She gasped. Oh, Johnny, don't say such things. Cut the axe, sister, I snarled. Osborne helped you cut Downs out of the deal. He'd given you what you wanted. I'm sure you gave him something in return. But he was getting a little too bossy for you, wasn't he? Wanted too much of the take? Didn't want to take orders from a dame? You killed him the night I met you, just before you came to the club. I went to his place the next day, and I found him just the way you left him. There's only one way I can think of for a woman to get face to face with a man when he's sitting with his pants and shorts down around his ankles. Close enough to stick her gun against his temple and blow his brains all over the wall. I could still smell your perfume on him, so don't feed me a bunch of nonsense about what we meant to each other. Johnny, I, I love you. Enough, I barked. I don't believe you, doll, not one bit. I'm sure you said the same thing to Osborne and who knows how many others. But you were different, she whispered, holding her cuffed hands out to me. You, with you I meant it. Well, sweetheart, I took a long drag, then blew the smoke out slowly. I guess we'll never know the truth about that. I threw away my cigarette, turned, and walked off into the night.
If you liked today's recording, please like and favorite us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find us at coffeecontrails.com. Thanks. <laughs>